Okay, so it's the middle of the workday for many of you, but close your eyes for a moment and imagine this. A healthcare system where all patients have access to patient-centered medical homes with extended hours, so no one has to miss work. Patients with chronic conditions such as diabetes and heart disease can see a physician, nutritionist, and pharmacist all during the same office visit. Volunteer health coaches offer increased monitoring and better coordination of care at home. Wellness and health education is a part of each person's personal prescription. Neighborhood associations organize community walks. Patients are less likely to require ER visits and hospitalizations, saving millions of dollars worth of resources and generating a virtuous circle where one improvement supports the next. Whose vision is this? I didn't write this copy. Uh, You're going to find out who did. However, the question might be, where do I sign up? Well, it helps right now if your zip code is 29203, and we're going to find out why on this edition of WIHI. And welcome, everyone, to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered biweekly and also for your later listening and convenience via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. So 29203 is Columbia, South Carolina. And in the midst of all the healthcare challenges that everyone on today's program is familiar with, this community is deciding to do something that's probably not yet been tried yet in the U.S., at least not to this extent. They're taking the growing conversation and focus on what's often referred to as population health and actually trying to build the leadership and the infrastructure to connect all the dots. Three key people behind this effort called Healthy South Carolina are my guests today on WIHI, and I'll introduce them in just a moment, but first here's IHI's Jesse McCall. He keeps an eye on WebEx for us to ensure that you can use and be part of the program effectively. Welcome, and Jesse. Thanks, Madge. Just a few things to point us out point out to help you all make the most of the WebEx technology we're using for today's program. First is the chat window in the bottom right-hand corner of your screen. And if you tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that we have in that chat area. We're going to keep it closed for about the first 20 minutes of our show today and let our guests get their comments out. And then we'll remind you at about the halfway point how to use the chat box in order to ask questions and share comments with each other. Uh, as a teaser, you're going to have to chat to all participants. Several of us are in, he- in the studio here monitoring that chat area, and we'll bring the questions up to Madge and our guests as they come in. If you want to make that window larger or smaller, hover over the dividing line between it and the slides and click and drag like you would an Excel document. There are sure to be some helpful resources that come up during our program today. And don't worry about tracking them all. We'll post them along with an archived version of the audio to the WIHI webpage. Finally, there's a few ways that you're connected and listening to our program today. First is by streaming audio through your computer, and that's headphones or speakers that are attached to your computer. This works best on a high-speed connection, and if your connection is a little less than optimal or you experience any difficulty with that streaming audio, click the Request button with a phone icon that's just above the chat window over on the right-hand side of the screen. That'll give you the numbers to dial in to listen to our program over the phone. If you do have any technical issues, you can chat them to the WebEx host. That's me, Jesse McCall, and I will be able 
able to help you out. So that's it from me, Madge. And uh, I did have the privilege of visiting Columbia, South Carolina about three years ago. So I'm really interested in today's program to hear, you know, what progress has been made since then. So uh, let's get going. All right. Thanks, Jesse. Great historical perspective, uh, really dating back to the campaign. So that's terrific. So welcome again to WIHI and our discussion of how a community creates its own health improvement initiative. Let me provide brief introductions of our guests and you can learn more on our own website as well as the websites associated with each of these fine individuals. Rick Foster is the Senior Vice President for Quality and Patient Safety for the South Carolina Hospital Association, a physician by training. He's also a Senior Medical Advisor for LifePoint, the organ procurement organization for the state. Rick has an impressive record as a healthcare leader and is known and appreciated by many as a true improvement champion. He's been my guest before on WIHI. Rick, welcome back. Thanks. Terrific. It's a pleasure to be with you, buddy. All right, terrific. Calling in from Lyme, New Hampshire today, often on the go, is Kate Hilton. She's also been a guest on WIHI before. She's the Director of Organizing for Health, an organization and an initiative that's applying critical social movement organizing principles to much-needed change in health care. Anchored at the Hauser Center at Harvard University and energized by her collaboration with many, including Marshall Gans, Kate designs campaigns, teaches organizing and leadership skills, and strategizes with teams to take action, all essential to what's unfolding in South Carolina. It's great to have you with us, Kate. Welcome. Thanks so much, Madge. It's a pleasure. Terrific. Finally, a special welcome to Landis Landon, who lives in Columbia, South Carolina, and is president of Immaculate Merchant Services. With a background in the Army, real estate, and a student of his own health challenges, Landis is emerging as one of the critical new community leaders of Healthy South Carolina. So welcome to you, Landis. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. All right, so we've got all these great people on board. We're going to get underway. I want to acknowledge that John Gothier is also with us. He's part of the WIHI team, and periodically he may be tweeting about today's program, and you can follow his tweets at hashtag or pound IHI. And if you're just joining us, a reminder that this is WIHI. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan, and we're talking about an exciting and timely new initiative that promises to transform health and health care in Columbia, South Carolina, so I'm really glad you're with us. I'm going to begin with Kate Hilton. Kate, the Healthy South Carolina campaign sits within this larger vision of organizing for health, so I thought it would be important to explain that larger vision and that roadmap and how it led you to Columbia, South Carolina. Sure. Thanks, Mad. Um, the story of organizing for health really starts with the Fannie E. Ripple Foundation, um, which is a catalyst for new ways of thinking about our health system, how to achieve better health, better care, and lower costs, or what IHI calls the triple aim. And in 2007, Madge, um, a group of thinkers were convened by Laura Landy, the president of the Ripple Foundation. Um, these thinkers included Amory Lovins, the chairman of the Rocky Mountain Institute, uh, Don Berwick, then the, the head of IHI, Elliot Fisher of Dartmouth Atlas and others, and they sat down to ask themselves what health and healthcare in the United States should look like and how we could have foster new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, new change theories that would get us from where we are to where we want to be. And it was out of those conversations that something called Rethink Health was born. Rethink Health is a transformational initiative of which Organizing for Health is one project. Um, there are other projects as, as part of Rethink Health, including uh, Managing the Commons, which is led by a colleague um, who works with Lynn Ostrom, uh, Nobel 
uh, winning economists, um, you know, other colleagues working in systems thinking and, and system uh, dynamics, um, others in leadership, including Sherry Mediato and Peter Senge. And we were called, myself, my colleagues, um, Ruth Wagaman, my, my mentor and colleague, uh, Marshall Gans, to, to really ask the question what organizing as a change theory had to offer to moving us from where we are to where we want to be. And organizing is really a theory about people. It's about using the power of people to create change. And so in organizing, we identify and recruit and develop leaders. We then build community around that leadership. And from that community, we'll, we build the power to influence change, whether that's to influence others or whether that's to create new capacity that hasn't been developed before. So we were asked by Laura of the uh, Laura Landy of the Fannie Ripple Foundation, what do you think? What, what does organizing have to offer the transformation of health and health care around um, what IHI calls the triple aim? And, and we said, we don't know, <laughs> but we'd love to find out. And so we engaged in the design of an action research project and really started by thinking about what, um, you know, what do we need to see from a community first that would indicate that, that they, in fact, were ready to use organizing as a particular theory of change. And so um, we began by looking, uh, in fact, it was Maureen Bizignano who tipped us off to Rick Foster in uh, Columbia and, and helped us build the relationship with Rick, who is a very transformational leader and uh, passionate advocate for um, building bridges across boundaries um, institutionally in South Carolina. And we were looking for people like Rick who exercised democratic leadership versus autocratic, who um, engaged in a larger change group of people that had shared convictions around what kind of change needed to be um, brought into being, that had real sense of urgency, that things had to change now, um, that were open to a new way of learning um, or wanted to collaborate, uh, again, across organizational boundaries, and that had credibility, people that, you know, had some moral sway in the community and a sense of you know, moral conviction as to what was just and right in terms of delivering health and health care um, and taking responsibility as individuals together. So uh, as we went through this process, uh, we got to know Rick, we got to know a variety of leaders in South Carolina and, uh, and ultimately settled on beginning our work there. But I really probably should turn it over to Rick to, to say more about South Carolina itself. That sounds great. Well, that's important background uh, because things don't spring <laughs> out of the blue. And so, you know, vision and a, a kind of an effort um, as the one you've described, Kate, I think is kind of really critical. And, and now, Rick, you're going to help us understand at least a little bit about how this vision connects with what's going on in South Carolina. So my question to you is, what is it about the health care environment in South Carolina, you know, thinking about all the players, how difficult it is to get everybody thinking or rowing in the same direction. What is it that would make people so embracing of something like this? Well, thanks, Madge. I think that um, there are a number of key factors. I think that there was an awareness that there are many health care challenges and a lot of health disparities that we're facing in South Carolina. Um, and as we tried to look at the best ways for us to address those was around the same time that Hospitals and many other health care organizations came together in 2005 uh, under the IHI's 100,005 Million Lives campaign. We had very active engagement, every hospital in the state and over 30 other organizations involved. Then in 2007, building on that existing platform, we created the Every Patient Counts Partnership, 
with our commitment to improve the quality and safety of care initially. And so a lot of our focus was around improving the patient care experience. But as we continue to look at, at where we needed to focus our efforts, we identified um, that there was really needs within the communities to not only improve access to health care, but working with, with those communities to improve health status and reduce some of these disparities. And so um, all those organizations that had come together initially around the Every Patient Counts partnership decided that the triple aim was the natural platform to go with, and we started looking at communities where there were great needs but also a great potential for engagement from within the community. And it was around that same time that we were very fortunate to get connected to Kate and Marshall and Ruth and others and learn about the organizing model. And it, we realized that we actually were using some variations on that of how to build trusting relationships and bring diverse groups and individuals together around a common purpose. And as we looked at this and said, this seems to be a natural connection between our commitment to transform health and health care in South Carolina and use this organizing model as a foundational component of our work. So, Rick, just describe uh, Columbia, South Carolina, just kind of a thumbnail sketch. Uh, population, uh, what are some of the standout uh, qualities and or issues there, health challenges? Yeah, you're talking about in the, in the Columbia metropolitan area, probably about 250,000 people total. And it's, it's like many communities, not, in, not necessarily just in the south, but across the country, where you have a lot of variance as far as um, the mix of the population and uh, health status and health outcomes. So as we were looking at Columbia as a community where we were already very engaged with both the public and the private sector on looking at issues of health and health care, and we started looking and saying, where are there some of the greatest needs? That's how we were able to identify uh, the 29203 zip code. Fortunately, our Department of Health has some wonderful geo-mapping capabilities, and they were actually able to look and say, where do we have some of the, the, the most hot spots as far as um, needs for improvements in health status and health outcomes. And so it was kind of a collaborative effort to identify within Columbia as a very engaged, larger community, the 29203 zip code where there was great needs for improvements in health status and health outcomes, and a community that I think was, was primed to be engaged in a different way um, with other organizations that, are, that work within the community, uh, but doing it in a way that was different, that we actually did it with the community rather than to or for the community. So one just last question for right now in this opener. Uh, would you say that the hospital leaders uh, in this area, in the zip code in Columbia, uh, have a particular perspective that's unique? Uh, one doesn't necessarily think of, uh, you know, hospital administrators or many physicians, for that matter, necessarily embracing organizing in that sense. Uh, might, might be kind of raising eyebrows more than anything else. Well, I think that we already had kind of a, a foundation where uh, not just hospital leaders, but physician leaders, um, our different departments of public, uh, public of health and, and the Medicaid uh, leadership, uh, even other community leaders, Blue Cross, business leaders in the community, were already working on ways to improve health and health care. And so we already had that platform. And so when we had the chance to sit down together, what we were realizing is that, that we needed to look at a different way to actually engage from within the community. And so we, we kind of had a, an existing commitment from a lot of the senior leadership in these various organizations to want to work together, but just having a challenge on how to best go about doing that. Right. So it sounds like people were primed and were almost looking for a way to actually, act, you know, actualize the whole thing. Thanks, Rick. Right. You're listening to Rick Foster, and this is uh, WIHI. Before, Rick, you heard Kate Hilton. And I'm about to bring in Landis, but, Kate, I want to just come back to you uh, just briefly, uh, just to make sure people we aren't too abstract here. So if you're building a community-wide mobilization to, prov- to improve health, 
health and health care, as Rick is talking about. Give us an idea of some of the key strategies and even what are some of the health issues that you're targeting. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, first, I think it's important just to understand some of the criteria that, that come into play for the strategy. So, you know, one is to use organizing as a theory of change. Um, another is to actually, you know, create measurable outcomes around the triple aim. Another is to engage multiple constituencies, so community members, whether that's, you know, folks from churches, from neighborhood associations, from schools, um, from barbershops, et cetera, to um, providers, uh, insurers and payers, uh, hospitals, et cetera, together in this effort to achieve these outcomes. And we faced originally this chicken and egg question, which is we wanted the community to define the strategy and what it wants to do because we're not, we're not coming in to say this is what we think. We wanted to find out what do you want to do? What, what do you imagine the transformation of health and health care to be? And yet we had to recruit leaders into something not yet defined. And so the way that we really started this project was to recruit um, a vision team that could help us really map and understand what we were looking at, and that was largely what Rick was getting at with thinking about identifying a place like 29203. Um, and, but from there, that vision team did, did one-to-one meetings in the community in that area um, to start to develop a core leadership team that would, in fact, take responsibility for the campaign. And taking responsibility and being committed to something and organizing is very important. So our core leadership team um, is made up of eight individuals that commit 15 hours a week to this campaign, whether that's part of their work or on top of it. And when we, when we started and launched that team, we, we did so through a leadership training, and we, teached, we taught particular skills to those leaders around what it takes to organize. And, and for us, in organizing, leadership means taking responsibility to enable others to achieve purpose in the face of uncertainty, and that requires um, developing skills like learning how to motivate others to join you in action through your own narratives and telling stories about your values and where they, com- they come from um, and why it's so urgent now to take on this challenge and what your hope is for the future. Um, other skills like building relationships and having one-to-one meetings with people, um, building effective leadership teams, structuring them so that they have a shared purpose and clear norms of operating together and an understanding of clear roles. They meet regularly and they're stable. Um, strategizing is another core leadership practice that we teach, really identifying um, how to use the resources we have to develop the resources we need to get the outcomes that we want and identifying what those outcomes are. And then finally, taking action, which can range from everything from facilitating a team meeting to um, having a one-to-one to running a town hall meeting and, or some big event to putting on your own leadership training. Um, running a house meeting campaign, et cetera. So this core leadership team from there, that was in July of this year, um, these eight folks um, worked to um, recruit 90 people to come out to a town hall meeting in 29203, and they did that by having uh, over 131-to-one meetings in the community. And at the town hall meeting, <coughs> excuse me, Madge, yeah. um, <laughs> it takes they, had, <laughs> yeah. they, they, they asked, you know, what what do you envision your health and health care to look like in this community? And it was really from the brainstorming around issues of access, of health literacy, um, <clears throat> other interests that the, that the community members were identifying that they then continued to recruit leaders from that community to join uh, the next wave of leadership trainings, again, in those same skills and practices, building out the next layer of teams 
that would work to engage the community, whether it was in 29203, whether it was a provider community, whether it was health coaches, um, whether it was foundational to the to the structure of the campaign, like having a, a team that focused on um, on learning and capturing data um, and, and feeding that back into the strategy of, of the campaign or, or developing those who could train others in these skills. And from that that training, that was in September, they they have undertook a collective decision making process to to work through um, what had come out of the community and to begin to identify different strategies that the community had had articulated to take forward um, into a house meeting campaign. So they they zeroed in on three different strategies. Um, they as a as a group of fifty collectively decided these were the ones they wanted to propose to the community given that, they, that these ideas had come from the community. And they did so by launching a six-week campaign. We call it a house meeting campaign. And they're conducting 50 house meetings in 29203. Um, we're, we're having them, uh, you know, really recruit deeply within their community. So by the end of these six weeks, they'll have engaged over 1,000 people in the community. And they'll be inviting those, those people in the house meetings into conversations about their values, about what, what they care about in terms of their own or their family's health and health care, and en- engaging them in what they see as good about these, these different ideas to take forward and, and what challenges they see. And on November 14th, in just a couple weeks, um, they're working to turn out 300 of those folks, of those, the members of 29203, to um, come to this community assembly to actually collectively vote and decide on the strategy that the community itself wants to take forward, um, which has been continually tweaked and improved based on the outcomes of what people have been contributing in the House meetings. And so once they collectively decide on that, we'll be, again, working to recruit another wave of leaders. And in um, early February, there'll be another leadership training, this time of 200. And now each time that, that we engage the next layer of leaders, it's the teams that have come together that are, in, are conducting those one-to-ones, meeting with people, talking about this. And there's a tremendous amount of energy that comes into these trainings and really creates a campaign story of, of who we are as a campaign. Right, right. And then they launch out from there into uh, the campaign launch, which will be March 3rd. So it's, it's been a really fun foundational stage and right. so th- uh, a real yeah, journey. Yeah, no, that's great, Kate. And I, I think part of what you're laying out there is really what it takes to sort of build Old, uh, kind of the outreach, the stake, actually people's connections, and I think that's what we're going to uh, have Landis help us out with. Um, I'm aware from some literature, early literature that you're working on right now, which I understand people will soon be able to access more of this, I think, on a website, but that there are very, there are some specific goals that are in the works related to wellness, um, the numbers of people who will be involved in this campaign, some of the issues around access to primary care, uh, also reducing costs. Uh, there are some uh, recognizable names in terms of uh, Palmetto Health. Uh, working on um, patient-centered medical homes and also some, you know, very concrete health outcomes. 
and efforts to reduce costs uh, in in this community based on non-urgent use of uh, ER, et cetera, of the and reducing hospital readmissions, familiar issues to many. So, uh, and perhaps we can uh, before the program is over today, we can um, make sure that people do know how to to sort of get resources and track things. So, thanks, Kate. And now, Landis Landon, I want to bring you in. Um, so, a lot of the things that Kate was referencing, uh, I think a lot of it. Ha- this this is sort of who you are in all of this. <laughs> you're an emerging leader. I understand you're doing, uh, you know, house campaigns and that sort of thing. So, I I would love to just ask you, um, you know, sort of what made you interested in all of this, and and uh, you know how you decided to kind of step up uh, to, to the plate for this organizing effort. Well, um, actually, what really made me be a part of Organizing for Health was, I guess, my own life itself. Um, I was a person um, raised up in the rural areas of Eastern Shore, Maryland, um, and we didn't have a lot of things to do in Eastern Shore, Maryland. So, obviously, one of our pastimes was eating. (laughs) Um, (laughs) One thing about it, though, um, my family, uh, my immediate family, my grandmother, my aunts and my uncles, my mother, all of us had a certain level of obesity to us, and it wasn't really strange to me because my entire family was that way. Um, but one day I was inside of school. I never forget this. I was eating a uh, some type of cell, like a cold cut sub, and my nose started bleeding. Mm. Um, thought it was very interesting that you eat a sub and your nose started bleeding. So when I went home, I told my mother, and she immediately took me to the doctor. Um, the doctor diagnosed me, stated that, you know, because of your level of obesity, at that particular moment I was around uh, 14 or 15 years old, and I was at 350 pounds. Um, and the doctor told me, say, well, son, you, right now you have high blood pressure, you, you have high, you know, sodium, you're obese, and the bottom line is if you don't do anything about this, um, you're going to have premature death, um, cutting your life about 30 years. Mm. Um, Again, I didn't, to me, if a 13 or 14 years old, I mean, that was a big scare. I mean, I would never want to shorten my own life. And it was interesting. That same exact day, if I'm not mistaken, um, I went out with my mother to the store. And remember those little keychains that used to have little jokes on them? Um, I see little keychains that stated, in the middle of difficulty lies opportunity. Um, It was a quote by Albert Einstein, and it really really stuck with me. And it gave me a mind state to say, well, I'm going to stop making excuses for where I am and start making the decision of where I want to be. Um, so to make a long story short, mm-hmm. um, in less than three or four months, I actually lost over 100, uh, 120-some pounds, actually, um, and actually lost in excess of 150 pounds, uh, maintained that weight off for the last 20 years. Um, I became very active um, in weight loss and all types of uh, karate and boxing and swimming. Um, it increased my faith, it increased my confidence, it made me feel and look a lot better. Um, and again, for the last 20 years, I'm not, I haven't even had an uh, actual cold or a common flu or uh, the common cold that you might see mm-hmm. during the changing of the seasons. Um, so what really, I guess, made me think about organizing for health was when I came to Columbia, South Carolina last year, um, I tried to initiate in my own community um, like a, uh, a community of fitness. Um, I wanted to get together with the homeowners beside me and the community beside me and go to the homeowners association and ask them what we need to do in order to get people together um, and do a little bit of fitness in order to make people live a lot better. Um, they were very interested, and then we got some people to come out and started doing some things. 
And at that particular time, I was approached by the president um, of our housing association, and she asked me, would you like to be a part of Organizer for Health? And I said, well, what is that? Right. <laughs> um, Isn't that said, what I'm doing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right, right. And so with that in mind, I said, well, this, well, she went into more detail about it. She said, well, it involves uh, trying to get better access to health care. It involves on reduction of costs that a person has to pay when they go to the hospitals or when they go through certain additional types of distress. Um, also, it involves better quality of health care. And those type of things stuck out to me. And I said to myself, well, if I can make an impact in just one person's life, count me in. Um, I went to the actual meeting. I was absolutely blown away uh, by the sheer um, uh, thought of having shared leadership in order to really be the main theory or organizing um, as a main theory of change in order to get more people involved um, from the community to do things in their own community. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that idea. Um, I really, we went to the actual meeting itself um, from having shared values and having shared commitments and to having key learning and evaluations. I mean, it was just one good time after another. So to answer your question, what really... Yep. I guess gave me the spark of wanting to be a part of this is the bottom line is if we don't have health, what do we have? Right. We can't appreciate our families. We can't love our loved ones. We can't go to work. We can't do things. And so I asked myself, what's more important than health? Wow, that's great. And we can kind of hear hear that spark. Um, thank you so much, Landis. I really appreciate it. And I'm sure people are going to have some follow-up questions for you. Rick Foster, before we kind of open things up for everyone's questions and comments, I want to ask you something. Uh, the, the When you listen to Landis, and I, I know you know him, uh, so you're, you're not hearing this for the very first time, but when you listen to his story and kind of the effort that he wants to make, and obviously sort of find a lot of people like him uh, who want to make that effort. What what do you think that does and what effect do you think that has on the healthcare community that you're a part of, the world you travel in a lot? What I'm learning from, from, from stories like Landis, and we all have stories to tell. We all have stories we want to sh that we really do want to share with others. And as we share that, we, we learn from each other. But we also realize that, that we have collective stories and that as we share those, those collective stories, there's an opportunity for us to create hope uh, and an opportunity to work together to, to really transform health of individuals, of a community, uh, and, and, and doing it working side by side. So, um, and, and Landis mentioned it, but just the amazing amount of energy and, um, uh, in that room at that town hall meeting. Um, and you had individuals of all ages, all backgrounds. You had people in the community that may not have any access to health care sitting side by side with the, the leaders of, of, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield and Palmetto Health and our Department of Health. And, and actually there was a very positive, um, open um, communication, learning from each other. And it was interesting, a lot of common themes that came out from that, that everybody uh, were, were starting to agree that there was an opportunity for us to work together to make, make real change within that community. Um, let me ask you a question. You and I, when we were when we were all on the phone, actually planning today, uh, we agreed that it might be important to <clears throat> just make sure people understand that there is a distinction between an organizing framework and uh, what is more traditionally understood as a community needs assessment. Explain that. Well, I think traditionally, you know, hospitals and other healthcare organizations have done a lot of things to try to figure out what do we need to do in the community, and so they'll do some type of an assessment. They may actually go in and put up facilities and all, but it tends to be more what are you doing to the community, not necessarily what you're doing with the community. With organizing, 
you're actually bringing together diverse individuals and organizations and building on the stories we all have to tell, kind of a, 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 a willingness and, and a commitment to a collective action around, in this case, a common purpose of actually truly improving the health of the community. So, um, for instance, when you're looking at saying, okay, what kind of facilities and services would be needing, the community needs to be telling that, us that. They need to take ownership, and the folks within the community need to take ownership of what they really need, um, what, what, what issues or concerns do they have, um, and I think you, can, you can't really get that from just a general community needs assessment. So this is really going into the community with one-on-ones and house meetings and, and really finding out where the needs are and surprisingly sometimes where there's opportunities to work together in ways that we've never thought of before. So uh, last question uh, before we go to uh, comments and questions from participants. Is there any story, just a brief story, or anything you can recall that in some ways almost uh, you know, exemplifies what we're talking about here when, when people are actually hearing people's stories as opposed to sort of doing an assessment and imposing things? Anything that the community said it wanted to do or residents said they were interested in that might have surprised healthcare leaders? Well, I think what was interesting and um, is the fact that there are a lot of individuals in that community that want to be involved in changing the health of the community. And what they said to us is that, from the from the standpoint of the organizations that are at the grass top, so to speak, is help us remove the barriers so we actually can uh, take action to improve the health of our community. Uh, we have also found that even just because someone has access to coverage doesn't mean they understand how to get the best care. I remember very vividly the story of a young couple that were very engaged in the town hall meeting, but they have coverage or some level of coverage for OB care, uh, but the, 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 the lady that was pregnant in the family was concerned about going for a visit to the doctor because there may be additional cost and not even understanding, you know, the importance of prenatal care from the standpoint of how to get that in the system. So um, a lot of it was around removing barriers, not... Somebody come and do something for me. Just take the barriers away so we can actually make our health better in our own community. Right, exactly. Okay, thank you very much. So we've been hearing from Rick uh, Foster, uh, Landis Landon, and Kate Hilton. And, uh, Jesse, now let's uh, open things up uh, for what's on the minds of those of uh, you who've joined us today, and I'm really thrilled that you're here. Go ahead, Jesse. Thanks, Madge. We have a great conversation going on here, and we'd like to add everyone there on the phones and listening to us uh, to the conversation. You can use the chat box in the bottom right-hand corner to get your questions in and send messages. Please remember when you're chatting to select all participants from the drop-down menu that's just above where you enter the text. Uh, One question did come in a little earlier, and it's a a pretty interesting one. We've had a lot of conversation around engaging uh, different healthcare organizations, um, but uh, Jonathan Smolo is interested in how you're engaging the patient and their family, Uh, and this is looking beyond a a patient portal uh, or something online, but how how you're involving them in this community organization. Okay, good question. Who who wants to uh, take that? I mean, I, it's interesting because I think the electronic health record and that level of engagement is one that's got a lot of currency mm-hmm. and a lot of attention. And in a way, you guys are, I'm sure that, that can help what you're doing, but you're really talking about something else. Uh, Rick or Kate or I, I don't care, whoever wants to jump in. Yeah, I mean, I'll start by saying that... Um, the traditional model would be saying, oh, we, we need to create something so that uh, like a patient portal and, and the healthcare system would develop it, not necessarily 
without before checking with the actual people in the community to say, is this something that makes sense to you? Is this something that you would use? And so as we do these town hall meetings and one-on-one, the reality is that everybody we're meeting with in the community is also a patient and has family members that are patients. And so one of the things we're discussing is to say, how will we best engage you in your own health and health care? What kind of resources would you need? Uh, and even everything we design for that community is going to be driven by what the community says they would need to help them. Sometimes it's basic things like, um, you know, none of the providers are open after hours. And if I, you know, miss one more day of work to take my child to the doctor for asthma, uh, for an asthma attack, I can't do it. But the emergency room is open after 530. And so these are the kind of things that they're telling us what, what they would need from the system. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh, maybe, uh, Landis, that's a good question for you. I, I, many people get very jazzed about, you know, getting access to your record, and I, I don't want to, you know, uh, minimize that and being able to see things and having access through the computer. But um, how, how do you uh, think about uh, sort of the level of, of engagement that you really want with the provider community? Um, I think the, the provider community, the level of engagement I'm looking for is more of a type of relationship where it really shows that they actually care. Um, a lot of people feel that when you go to certain um, organizations or go to certain facilities that you're just another number or you're just another pill. Um, I guess we really need to go back to the old school or, or the old way of making sure you're looking out for the person and making the person feel like they're feel safe and being taken care of with great quality, um, not to be, you know, promulgated as some type of another number or feel like, you know, they're just part of a system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. All right, let me look at some of uh, the other. Um, somebody is, is curious about sort of how, given all the things, I suppose, that might arise in these house meetings, in your town hall meetings, how do you uh, figure out the priorities, uh, the sequencing? It's uh, Maybe, Kate, I'll ask you, there, uh, somebody's asking, was it a specific prioritization model that was used? Kate? Um, it, it was actually a very um, specific process that we call collective, collective decision-making, where we uh, open it up to alternatives and, and brainstorm a lot of different ideas and, and work on teams, for example, to generate those ideas um, based on uh, you know those teams being members of the community or having conducted uh, quite a few members conducting one-to-ones with, with members of the community to understand their interests and needs and proposing different ideas and really then deliberating together on the strengths uh, and the challenges of, of those ideas and ultimately coming to some sort of uh, voting system so that they could decide together. And so as that's gone on for some of these strategies, um, for the focus of the campaign, obviously a lot of particular tactics have also been generated in the House meetings, which we then, you know, as a part of our processes to learn from everything we do. And so notes are being taken in all the House meetings. We actually use a platform called National Field. National Field is a campaign platform that helps us um, communicate internally so that um, you know, folks that have, have hosted a house meeting, for example, can upload those notes and other members of um, strategizing teams can read them and see what sorts of ideas were generated and how to integrate that into the campaign strategies for each of these different ideas as it comes to a big vote towards the 14th. So there are there is a real need for both a collective decision making process, um, a transparency in that process, as well as um, 
a way in which to communicate between what's happening on the ground and how some of the leadership teams are thinking about improving those strategies based on what's happening on the ground in conversations between people at house meetings, for example. So, so, so just to be sure that uh, everyone is clear and I, that I understand, on November 14th, so there will be voting, actually. There will, in fact, be voting, yeah. Okay, um, and that will start to lay out what some of the priority areas are. That's correct, and that voting, you know, the, the folks invited to that meeting are members of the 29203 community, so they... Ideally, many of them will have already been engaged in the House meetings. Um, however, you know, certainly is not limited to that. And so folks will be joining us to, um, again, look at where, how far along we t- we've taken these strategies co- together through this process and how to choose one um, that, that, in fact, the community has chosen for itself. Thank you. So here's a relate. Thanks, Kate. Here's a related question. Somebody is asking, how do you integrate data and evidence about health status? Rick was talking about that earlier, and health capacity into the community conversations so that strategies target needs as well as wants. I suppose one implicit thought here is that they, maybe they might not be entirely aligned. And so, how do you ensure that maybe some of the underlying things that you know already um, actually are, are addressed? Rick, can you? you speak to that? Yeah, and I think that, that actually one of our key leadership teams is around the data and how we use that data um, to both um, help inform the individuals in the community of what their community really looks like, um, as well as helping to drive decisions on where we would focus our efforts for improvement. Uh, and then the third area is to be able to monitor as we, as we make those efforts so we're actually making a difference. And what I've found is that while there's sometimes there's some surprises within the community as far as what's going on, I think many of the community leaders knew that they had challenges in, in these various areas. And so in particular with the Department of Health and some of the other data sources in our, in, in our state to be able to go in and say, what does 29203 look like? Uh, it's helped both the folks in the community to say, well, this, this makes sense where we need to focus, but it's also helped the providers to better understand the community because that's, that's a different level of looking at what, what the community looks like to them than just from a health care perspective. Okay, thanks. Kate? Yeah, I'd just add that that's definitely a dialogue um, right. between members of the community and folks who are able to see the system from a very different vantage point, you know, whether they're at Health and Human Services, the Department of Health, or um, you know, Rick himself working with a variety of different hospitals and knowing what sort of initiatives are going on. And, and so understanding um, you know, that, that that is a give and take between the two so that, in fact, every strategy can be improved and, and strengthened by those by that data, by those uh, measurable outcomes that we want to achieve around the triple aim. So yep. um, it's, it's not one in isolation of the other. And a real challenge would have been if we only said to the community, what do you want, period, without some really clear criteria as to what right. we're asking them for. So, yeah, that's so, so that, is, that has always been in, in conversation, in dialogue between... So I'm curious, uh, back to you, Landis, uh, as you think about heading to this November meeting, uh, do you feel that these house meetings that you've been part of, are they helping people sort of begin to see that they actually could could have and can have a voice uh, and be part of this dialogue and set some real priorities? Absolutely. Not only um, do they feel they have a voice, but they also feel they have a, ch- uh, a chance to transform what's going on inside of 29203. Um, you hear stories about people who haven't exited out of their own homes for the last, let's say, several months because they don't have a lot of things to do and because they may have some health issues and they don't have persons to assist them to go different places. But 
they rustle themselves up to come to a health meeting. They rustle themselves up to come to a community meeting to talk about these particular issues and how we can put forth solutions generated from our own community. And to me, that's the most important part because, I mean, without our communities working together, without our individuals and our families working together as a community, we don't have a community. We don't have you know, a quote-unquote neighborhood that we're looking for. So it's all about, you know, you know, the power of people realizing where they are and where they can be. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Thanks, Landis. There's a couple of questions here that, you know, maybe would go back and forth with with Kate and Rick. Uh, I, two, per, maybe the same person asking again, uh, a wonderment about the physician community. Is, are there some qualities there? How would you describe that physician community uh, in, in uh, the zip code here, 29203 or in Columbia, uh, that makes it very receptive to what's going on or any challenges? Well, I mean, this particular zip code area, had, had we'd, we'd already identified, had somewhat limited access to primary care services within the community. And there was a community health center, and actually Dr. Stu Hamilton has been the leader of our core team in Columbia, had already been working within that community. And we, we there was a realization we needed to provide more primary care access, but rather than going the traditional route of just building another center, we said we need to go into the community and understand how we would best respond to their needs for primary care. There's also the two large health systems in the area, both both have involvement in this community and have a combination of employed positions and affiliated positions. And so we're looking at how they would be connected. And we already had some work going on uh, in our largest system, Palmetto Health, around creating true patient-centered medical homes. So this concept of it being more than just physician, but other types of, of providers uh, working in, in, in the community. And so it was, it was kind of un- based, based on those existing efforts to look at where the physician community was in that area but then going into the community and finding out how we would best meet those primary care needs from their perspective. Rick, a kind of follow on that, I suppose, is uh, we've got a, um, a Betsy David is asking about the community needs assessment and um, referring to a new requirement and wondering in a way whether you can use that uh, whole process uh, uh, to, to benefit this effort in, in Columbia. I would say that, that obviously the community's assessment would still have value. It's just it would be one of many resources you may tap into. The difference here is that that may help give you some baseline data, but then how you actually then go into the community like Kate was talking about and share that data but also match it up with what you're actually hearing directly from the community. And you're not going to get that um, with the community needs assessment alone, but it can be complementary. So you can meet that requirement um, but also use that as just one of many tools um, along with more of that direct contact in the community of what's really happening. Thanks. Uh, so where does cost come in? Uh, I'm, I'm just thinking about, you know, the national conversation right now and, uh, you know, trying to really understand, you know, value and uh, we've got a lot of things going on around about accountable care organizations, etc. Um, Kate, I'm curious whether or not, you know, that sort of conversation, are you having a very different conversation in Columbia, South Carolina that feels sort of different than what the national conversation is and are costs a factor either as an argument to change things or inhibiting even some of the things that people might like to do cost is definitely a factor and part of the conversation but i would say that it's not it's not the core basis of where this effort um, starts in its conversation Um, and the reason for that is we've really engaged people in the conversation around their core values about what health means to them, around what access means, around what um, 
in many ways what justice looks like. Um, and so, so that we're starting from a place of um, understanding that people have a lot of self-doubt about utilizing the system that needs to be overcome with a sense of you know, solidarity with others. Um, there are other values, I think, that are, that are in many ways taking precedent in this effort over costs among the community. Um, now, that doesn't mean that every constituency looks at things the same way. So, you know, payers are looking at things a little bit differently. And, you know, the, the, the irony is that the payers that we have involved as campaign leaders are also citizens of Columbia, and so they, they wear both hats. And so, <laughs> on the one hand, they're motivated, motivated by their own sense of, of justice around health. And on the other hand, they also are engaging in questions of, you know, really what does this mean in terms of cost? And of course, each of our strategies has to take that up directly in terms of um, having clear measurable outcomes that demonstrate cost savings. And so, you know, some of the data, for instance, that that the community has collected is just looking at itself. It's, you know, 45,000 people live in 29203. 15,000, one out of three is uninsured. On average, that population is utilizing the ER two times a year. Each, each ER um, visit is about 2,000. It ends up being about $60 million worth of ER visits from just 29203. And even a small reduction in that cost by some of the, the changed behaviors around how folks are accessing primary care, um, how uh, they're working together around their own health literacy, um, can really generate cost savings that we're hoping to work with other partners in the community like hospitals and uh, payers and so on to reinvest in the campaign and reinvest in the activities that the campaign will take up so that in fact um, you know that savings is um, redistributed within the campaign and that it's not just a few people that benefit from those savings. Okay, thanks so much Kate. So go ahead I'm sorry, could I possibly surmount that as well? Go ahead. Um, right. um, Landis. One thing I also feel that the uh, cost of that is also if we do nothing. Uh, we sit back and realize, you know, this cost is ultimately our families, our mothers, our fathers, our grandfathers, our, our cousins, our nieces, our nephews, our loved ones. This is a real cost because if we do not fix this problem, these are the persons who are going to suffer, our own families, our own neighborhood. So I guess the real cost, because cost is always an issue, whatever, you know, faucet that you go into, whatever endeavor you go to, cost is always an issue. But it's also an issue when it comes down to cost compared to what? I mean, mm-hmm. compared to our lives, there is no cost. Right. Exactly. Well, that's uh, okay. thanks, Landis. That's very important, and I, I think that's kind of the alignment, obviously, that is being sought here. So that these things all all come together. Um, there was a question here in the chat uh, for all of you about measurable outcomes, uh, and I just want to remind everybody that uh, the community is going to be voting uh, in the middle of the month about its priorities, and I think at that point it'll be a lot clearer uh, what kinds of things will be tracked over time, but I think some of the things, Kate, that you alluded to uh, in terms of uh, lack of insurance, et cetera, and health status and whatever, I assume that some of these things will be looked at over time, access uh, access to primary care, et cetera. Is that, is that a fair assumption? You bet. Absolutely. Okay. So, um, yeah. I, go ahead. Man, I was going to say, and obviously this, we're looking at this as, as a it's not just a one-year commitment. This is a, we, we view this as a long-term commitment 
uh, within this community and hopefully growing into other communities. And so they're going to be different stages of outcomes. And and it's interesting that, that, that the Organizing for Health is built on the AAA platform, which is the platform we want to work with in South Carolina. And so there's an acknowledgement that we're, we're talking about improving the experience for each patient, the population health, and dealing with the cost, but doing it with the community. And so whether it's looking at reducing uh, avoidable ED visits and, and connecting that to, to, to providing more primary care access, or actually start to see things like reductions in teen pregnancies mm-hmm. and improving in nutritional status and, and reducing obesity, and then down the road showing that reducing cardiovascular and diabetes disease burden, we know we're not going to be able to see all those day one. But whether by this kind of engagement within the community over the next several years, we can see that kind of um, significant change in overall health status in a community and health outcomes. Terrific. No, I, I think that's that's what we'll be looking for, and I uh, I look forward to you know having all of you back even to to be talking about this further. And I think there'll be more ways that people can sort of check out what's going on. I also think uh, on the chat here, even in our remaining minutes, um, if any of you want to sort of just chat in efforts that you think even uh, bear a slight resemblance to what's going on in Columbia, South Carolina. This this has some very, very uh, kind of unique uh, framing for it uh, and a very nice long view. But if there's anything anybody wants to chat in, um, please uh, do so. And we know, of course, that a lot of communities through the IHI Triple Aim have been working on some of these things for years as well. And, and that has come up in connection uh, to this work. Two things I want to just make sure we mention before we get to the top of the hour. And there was an earlier slide up there. Uh, Organizing for Health uh, is offering a learning course that gets underway in February of 2012 and goes through May and these are nine modules and it's all all the virtual class time and activities combined add up to about a 10-hour week commitment and it's a rich set of topics and faculties using a quote head heart and hands approach uh, this is an opportunity to learn all about sort of the leadership and organizing skills we've been um, skipping through today, and I th- it sounds really fascinating. So you can find out more about that at uh, the website that's listed here on the slide, and if anybody is just connected to us by phone and not via computer, please uh, email info at IHI.org, and we'll make sure you get this so that I don't have to uh, tick off this long URL, um, but it, it's there. Organizingforhealth.org slash distance hyphen learning. But uh, feel free to ask us for that slide. And there's a person to contact as well, V. Dillon, D I L L E N, at organizingforhealth.org. At the same time, we've got a really interesting. web in action coming up here at IHI called Improving Employee Health Costs and Care, based on our own IHI triple aim. These are all part of the same universe here of ideas that we're trying to propel things forward and uh, really emphasizing here what role employers uh, can play uh, in trying to move a community uh, forward as well, focusing on the workforce. Three 90-minute web-based sessions uh, and uh, that information, more information about that is also available at IHI.org. So um, I guess for sort of some final thoughts here, um, I I guess, uh, you know, you you sort of opened up, uh, you kind of opened up a big window here. And um, I I suppose um, people might be be saying, um, you know, too good to be true. Uh, Are you sure you're not, (laughs) you know, up against sort of the usual barriers uh, we we all face? Is there something kind of different here that you think this, this may have some real sustainability. Maybe I'll start with you, Rick. 
I do. I think that um, we're, we're talking about a, a very different approach and a different starting point of accomplishing the triple aim. And, and, and Kate's touched on it real as, as far as how do we get together, share our stories, uh, become engaged in creating the kind of trusting relationships with those in the community, and then help have them take ownership of deciding what the community needs. Uh, and what we're finding, I think, and, and will find, is that the, what the community needs is the same thing that the community providers need to be focused on and that the, that the public agencies need to be focusing on to actually improve health and reduce cost. And uh, one of the questions I just wanted to touch on as a side note, this idea of, of dealing with more than just health care, when we first started, because we were all coming from the health care perspective, we, we didn't really appreciate the a broader sense of what else does the community need. And so potentially having a center in that community that not only provides primary care, but access to resources around employment opportunities yep. that was and other benefits yep. that they can get from the community. And in fact, as we develop these networks of health coaches, hopefully in, in 29203, that in itself is an employment opportunity. Fantastic. Yeah, there was a question in the in the chat about uh, kind of uh, effect on uh, employment issues and even people getting involved in as volunteers in this. So thanks very much, Rick. Uh, Landis, to you, uh, this this thing really has some legs. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, again, the the moral conviction that you receive um, hearing the stories from the community uh, of persons who have, have been you know, denied because of their insurance policy. Persons who have had certain uh, medical problems couldn't be initiated because um, the way it was entered or whatever the actual problem may be. Um, those particular stories, you know, literally linger and, and, and sear to your heart. And when you hear those stories, um, it, it gives you a flame, it gives you a burning desire to want to get out and do things for these people, to make a change, to make a transformation, to understand that we cannot keep on doing the same little things, expecting some different results. Okay. Um, so with that in mind, I really do feel that, you know, organizing for health is here to stay. Um, and I do feel that this great window, as you stated before, does have a fantastic light shining through it. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Landis. It's just been great that you've been with us today. Kate, you'll get the last word here. Uh, maybe I'll just ask you, uh, I know you think there's <laughs> this is sustainable. Uh, I, I, I'm sure you do. But uh, And feel free to reinforce that. But also, what what is a way that people can kind of keep track of, of what you're doing and, and how to sort of connect with all of you? I can already see there's a, a bunch of energy on the chat of folks who would love to sort of feed off of the knowledge you're all gaining here. Well, thanks. Uh, that's something that we see as definitely part of our responsibility in disseminating the learning um, that's going on here. And, um, you know, we hope that this isn't going to stop at the borders of 29203. It'll, you know, move into Columbia and we'll be engaging other communities in South Carolina already. We have some interest from Charleston and, and we would like to see this spreading in, in different ways, obviously based on the localities, the particularities of constituencies in different places, to take this up in other parts of the country. So um, we will be sharing that knowledge. Certainly, um, I'd invite everyone to, to visit our website, which is undergoing a major revision, and by the end of the year will we'll probably be much more helpful to all, but it's under organizingforhealth.org. It's part of yep. the Ripple Foundation and the Rethink Health website. Um, so you can also visit Rethink Health and the, Ripple, the Fannie E. Ripple Foundation's website. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition, you know, organizing for health, there are plenty of ways to plug in if you're not in Columbia. Um, we, we lead trainings. We, we lead webinars. We work um, with folks 
uh, and campaign partnerships, most recently with the National Health Service. We're currently actually working, I saw David Grayson's note, um, with some folks in New Zealand at uh, a district health board there. Um, and in, in addition to that, you know, the distance learning course, which you mentioned, yeah. is a great way, if you're working on something like this, to, um, to learn our approach to leadership in terms of our focus is really on developing leaders that can take this forward, that don't need us, that, that they have the skills to make this happen within their own communities. And um, those would all be great ways to plug in as well as ultimately through, um, you know, publications and ways in which we'll be getting the word out, um, both locally in, in Columbia and across South Carolina, but also nationally. All right. Well, terrific. Uh, my big thank you to Kate Hilton, Rick Foster, Landis Landon. Uh, really, you folks have uh, you, you brought a lot of a kind of hope and energy and some interesting ideas and a lot of good food for thought, and we will be interested in staying uh, on top of this and checking back with you. Uh, speaking of kind of, you know, building blocks, and what kinds of things can help in a community effort uh, like this. Next, on the next WIHI on November 17th, we're going to be talking about health literacy, new skills for health professionals. And we've got really one of the uh, nation's foremost experts uh, and advocates on this, Helen Osborne, author of the now updated version of the book, Health Literacy from A to Z, Gail Nielsen, and also Lisa Stevens. And uh, very, very um, uh, similar issues here. I um, that we've talked about today on that program as well with a focus on health literacy. The health, uh, excuse me, the webpage about this program is now live and you're welcome to enroll. Reminder, when you get off the program today, you can download the chat and any slides we used. Uh, if you missed any of that, you can email us at info at IHI.org. Thanks for filling out a brief survey that pops up, lets us know whether this was valuable and how we can improve. The people who helped make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Goss. Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Kristen Shear, and all of you who joined today. We have some nice music that opens and closes the program arrangements by Aaron Flanders and Miguel Sa Pessoa. And I want to just give a big shout out to Jesse McCall, who's been with me at my side with WIHI since the very beginning. Now Jesse sort of turns over some of the WebEx reins to John Gothier here and some others. And uh, Jesse's been just a fabulous organizer of this program. Speaking of organizing, and uh, he helped launch this uh, with all of us. And he's not going anywhere. He's just got a, a, a lot of things on his plate, and we want to thank him for all his efforts. Thanks, so thanks, Jesse. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care most of all for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day.